Today is Monday, May 25th, 2015, and this is episode 118 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, Jerry, and uh, although it's an odd, weird thing to say, happy Memorial Day. Uh, happy thinking about all the people who've died for us. And you as well. I guess. And you. That's right. I, uh, it's not Think of That Day, that's Veterans Day. Right. Let's thank those who have sacrificed for you. So get a Ouija board out and commune with a dead soldier. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. So let's hate move mail, on. Hate mail should go to jerry <laughs> at defensivesecurity.org. Oh. No, but seriously, I have nothing but the utmost respect and appreciation to, to armed forces, and especially those who have sacrificed for us. Absolutely. And uh, such that it makes me sad to see how we are giving up our freedoms in the name of safety. Anyway, carry on. In, indeed. So uh, first order of business is that uh, the opinions we express, especially tonight, the opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Uh, the second order of business is a reminder that the High Tech Crime Investigation Association Conference is coming up. Oh, let's see. When is it? It is coming up May, uh, sorry, August 30th through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. You can uh, use the discount code Defensive Security uh, to get 10% off the $750 ticket price. Looks like a pretty good conference. Uh, be there. I will be announcing the winner of the giveaway ticket uh, later this week on Twitter, nice. so watch for it. Uh, I, I I meant to do it already, but, um, you know, life gets in the way. So, And uh, for those who like to plan ahead, hack in the box next year. That's right. You and I may be there. That is very true. And I think it's actually, uh, is it this weekend or next weekend? Yeah, it's going on right now. We, That's right. Um, we uh, we have uh, met or at least virtually met one of the organizers and... We may have a discount code for next year. We'll see. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, travel over to ye old Amsterdam. Which is, by the way, an absolutely beautiful place. I have never been. I've, I would like to go. That yeah. sounds fun. Uh, hopefully work will allow such a thing. All right. Well, let's, um, let's jump into our stories. Uh, today's my son's birthday, so I want to ah. gotta well, get on to that. Happy birthday to your son. Thank you, thank you. It's the uh, it's the big driver's license birthday. So, <laughs> wow! Yikes! Yeah. Are, are, is is he getting his license right away? Uh, well, in in Georgia, they do. Uh, you have to you have to get a learner's permit for a year, where you have to drive with a licensed adult. Um, so he'll be getting that, and then. Uh, so he's turning fifteen. Turning fifteen. That's right. And then when he turns sixteen, he can get his full, full license. 
Now, does he have to like log a certain amount of time with a driver in this next year? You know, just... that's not clear, not very clear to me. But just mm-hmm. for the sake of pragmatism, we're going to have him drive quite a lot. And you often have wanted a chauffeur. I have. That mm-hmm. I have. Excellent. All right. So, uh, yeah, let's jump into our stories. The first one tonight comes from the Symantec Response blog, and the title is Check Your Sources, Trojanized Open Source SSH Software Used to Steal Information. And uh, this is a story that's been making the rounds about a Trojanized version of PuTTY. Uh, I think most people know that PuTTY is a open-sourced version of an SSH client that is very commonly used throughout the world and uh, apparently what happened here is that back in 2013, some nefarious cyber attacker released a customized version, a recompiled version of PuTTY with a little added extra that steals uh, credentials. So if you log into a server, it, it actually pings out to a command and control system with the username, password, and uh, host name that you're connecting to, which is just awesome and uh you know that apparently it's not incredibly widespread it's not really clear how widespread it is but the semantic here is claiming that uh they they had first seen this back in 2013 and it's kind of been uh you know intermittently seen but uh, apparently recently there's been a, a, a significant uptick in their encounters with it their hypothesis is that the uh, the author of this thing has been uh, you know I, I don't know working out the kinks with uh, command and control I, I don't really know it doesn't sound very complicated to me but apparently it's somewhat easy to recognize this as fake because it's it's larger than the official version in size and also it um, the, the the about screen is slightly different so you know probably both things that you really wouldn't think to look at if you just randomly went and downloaded it off the internet, which apparently is the problem. So you really, and and by the way, I think this is, again, part of a larger problem we have with the providence of software from the internet and kind of potentially, as much as I hate to say it, one of the benefits of the whole app store model. Yeah, this is nothing new. This has been a problem for years and years and years and years. I'm not sure why this is getting so much press. Uh, and when I read this story, I went, okay, well, I think the, to, I think the reason is that it's, you know, it's a, <laughs> this started with, this started with shareware back in the nineties. I, I know, just, I know, but this is stealing yeah, usernames and passwords on Linux and servers. <laughs> you have to verify where you're downloading your software from. You, I, I mean, come on, I know. this is one-on-one stuff. I know. It's silly. Silly, 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 silly. Um, and also, they, they they mention that, you know, putty is often trusted. And, you know, I, I hope people or organizations who have implemented some kind of trust model around software that's allowed and not allowed are not solely relying on the name of, right. of the package. <laughs> <Yeah. and> maybe <laughs> using things like hashes or... Not you know. that those can't you can't you know defeat that with collisions and all, but still, it's a it lot, makes it a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Yeah, I agree. I I just I'm puzzled by this being such a big deal. Uh, well, you know, it's a good reminder. It is a good reminder uh, 
you know, back in the day, we used to verify things with, you know, MD5 hashes to make sure we got uncorrupted, clean copies of things. But yeah, which you, which you got from the same site, that, now. which you got from the same site you downloaded the software, which is totally awesome. Well, the first damn thing is when you go to download Putty and you do a Google search, right? You know, the, the story is all they unintentionally clicked on, a, you know, a corrupted site. I'm like, they didn't unintentionally click on jack shit. They clicked on a site that wasn't the official Putty site because they didn't read Google properly. So this is a failure of Google comprehension. I can't argue with that. So... I'm not saying they get what they deserve at all. I'm not blaming the victim here. But I'm saying the problem is that people are going to unofficial sites. And, you know, they're going to, you know, free software for you.com download site and grabbing it. Now, to be fair, lots of bad guys will try to manipulate the Google rankings to get their malicious site higher up, you know, the, the rankings. But come on, go find the official putty site and stop being silly. You know? Yep. Yep. So, anyway, that's just my two cents. Wow. How do you really feel? So uh, It is a problem. It is a problem. <laughs> but it seems like a solvable problem if people take another second to think about the site they're getting it from. But I agree with you, the App Store model. But, again, this goes back to, you know, signing and that sort of stuff, which we have seen also corrupted. But it's raising the bar. It makes it a lot harder. Right. Yep. All right, so moving on to our next story, which comes from the Naked Security blog, and the title is, oh my goodness, Anatomy of a Logjam. Another TLS vulnerability. And it, so many, so many toilet jokes. And it, ha- <laughs> and it has a name, but no logo. So obviously, it's serious, but not... That did, did it have its own marketing site put together by a marketing group kind, that you know uh, kind of is more concerned about page hits than no credibility? No, I I I don't think so. Uh, I mean, they didn't. I don't think they registered the, uh, their own domain for it. So anyway, some, some marketing group missed an opportunity. I know. So the 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 story here is you know yet again. In one more, you know, chalk another one up for government intervention in, uh, you know, back in the 90s crypto war time where the, uh, the U.S. Man, go- I don't know about I, I lost an arm in the crypto wars. I don't know about you. You got that cyber arm going? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Let's just leave Which that. led to the Let's led just... to the cyber arms race. That's right. Boy, that could have gone. Then, that could have gone really horribly. And the then the enhanced cyber llamas rose up. Yep, yep. So, uh, so the deal here is that uh, this is yet another uh, issue involving export grade crypto, kind of like Freak was, but it's this is slightly different. Uh, whereas Freak attacked the implementation of TLS, this is actually a just a fundamental problem in in the Diffie-Hellman key exchange protocol. And uh, apparently it, it will let an attacker who has the ability to sit in the middle of your, your communication SSL, or I guess we have to call it TLS now, right? We got to retire SSL, uh, who can sit in the middle of your TLS session. They can effectively uh, you know, kind of play both sides and end up with a 512-bit key that's relatively easy to 
uh, to decrypt uh, um, using Amazon Web Services. And they kind of go on a little farther, which is interesting, uh, and and draw a a somewhat, I I would say, interesting uh, view that this particular attack methodology may actually be what what what's been referenced in some of the Edward Snowden documents about how the NSA and other intelligence agencies actually is able to decrypt uh, VPN traffic. So I'm you know not not to go off the deep end on that particular topic, but you know cryptography is hard, and and here is you know yet another another example. Um, the the solution, by the way, really is again to turn off those stinking export ciphers, uh, you know, and never intentionally degrade encryption again. Yes, which which <laughs> apparently we have not yet learned. No, no, we haven't. And it's kind of like inflation. Computers are going to keep getting faster, and CPUs are keep going to keep getting stronger. So if you forget that lesson. These things are going to keep happening. You know what? The- in fact, in fact, the next time you're designing an enterprise architecture for widely used encryption like TLS, plan to have to upgrade that thing every couple of years. Build that into your to your model. Yes, that was exactly what I was going to say. Oh, it, sorry. It, it's no, you, you're right on. This is a you know this kind of points out the fact that you know we just. The fact that you still have these 512-bit, you know, ca- uh, capacity for handling 512-bit keys in this crypto, kind of points out a fundamental problem in, uh, you know, in our software model or our, you know, just the internet in general. That once something's in there, it's really hard to get it back out. It just That's hangs true. on, and um, we, in order, f- especially for crypto, I mean, maybe. Other things aren't quite so problematic, but you know, with crypto, you kind of do have to keep moving the bar over time. And we're not, you know, we, we've I guess we've done that a little bit with certificates going from you know ten twenty four bit to twenty forty eight. But you know, that's as we're seeing now, that's actually not where a lot of the problem space is sitting. So, anyhow, yeah, it's an interesting one, and you know, like we're seeing with Poodle. If you've got a ton of embedded code or, or, or really you know, stubborn code to, to swap out that's reliant on SSL version whatever that is now vulnerable, uh, you're, making yourself very, you're making life very difficult for yourself to fix that. And so if you're going through and fixing that now, realize that probably something else is going to happen where you're going to swap out that code or upgrade that code again and try to build that sort of flexibility into your model. That's right. That's right. So, um, so yeah, you know, this is, it's getting harder and harder and harder in my view, at least to come up with a configuration of TLS that actually doesn't have, um, you know, problems with crime and freak and poodle. And, and, you know, that I think there's a, there's a couple of websites out there that actually will give you the current, recommended configuration for cipher suites and and things like that it, it's probably worth taking a look at because for the most part what was the default configuration is not acceptable anymore and that keeps changing so you you may want to just you know i don't know put on your calendar every six months or a year to go 
go check a you know go check on what you should be doing. You know the upside is I I kind of appreciate this research coming out and you know showing us these vulnerabilities so that we can try to keep our encrypted sessions encrypted as opposed to the government just sitting on these things and we don't know about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So all right, moving on to our next story. Well, which, oh, so oh, go ahead. Any advice? You know, the the only advice I would give is a lot of vulnerability scanners are now check for logjam, and yeah. uh, there's there's also some free scanners out there. Go find this stuff and swap out your crypto ciphers. That's right. That's what it really comes down to. Yeah, there's no. I mean, this is this is kind of lather, rinse, repeat from a, a number of the other previous vulnerabilities, yeah. like like again, like Freak. You just you got to go and figure out what. You know what the right uh, the set of uh, cipher suites are and and minimum key lengths. So, yep. All right, now we're moving That's on all. to uh, <laughs> Krebs on security, and the 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 story here is Care First Blue Cross breach hits one point one million dollars or one point one million people, not dollars. We don't know how much money yet, so uh, not a ton of information about what actually happened except that uh Caremark or sorry Carefirst not Caremark Carefirst issued a statement last Wednesday that attackers had gained access to names, birthdates, email addresses and insurance identification numbers. Uh and apparently not among the breach data was social security or credit card numbers. However, what are they offering? Drumroll please. Oh, 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 let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, credit monitoring. Yes! You got it. That's innovative. You got it. I and, swear, uh, you know, I still say credit monitoring companies are the place to invest your money. <laughs> it is It is a growth market. So I want to know, seriously, serious question. How often do credit monitoring services have a collision where some previous breach has already gotten a certain customer X covered by this credit monitoring, and a new breach comes up that also affects customer X, and that credit monitoring service goes, well, you're already covered. We'll just extend your service. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. There there, there has been a lot of jokes about, you know, kind of uh, banking them up. Sure. You could have pretty much lifetime credit monitoring right. for all the good it'll do you. Yeah. Between Home Depot and Target and Anthem, and you know, I, I've got credit monitoring for a number of years. So, uh, so anyway, uh, th- again, there's not a lot of detail about how actually this happened. However, um, it, uh, apparently, there's a little bit of an inkling of how it may have happened because uh, if you think back to the Anthem breach and to the uh, Primera breach. Uh, both earlier in the year, uh, there there was apparently some, I guess for lack of a better term, phishing domains set up for them, uh, registered through a domain registrar in China, uh, and they were kind of uh, lookalike domains, right? So WellPoint had uh, two L, two number ones instead of Ls, and and uh, they had uh, DNS structure that kind of mirrored. Again, allegedly, what the company used for like remote access services and and different things, 
And Primera had the same thing where they used two N's instead of an M. And uh, now somebody found that there was uh, two domains for care first, which kind of followed the same type of a model using a an L instead of an I and a number one instead of an I uh, in, in the word first. So, you know, the presumption is that, hey, um, you know, there, this is probably, it probably followed a similar model. If in fact, you know, this is the same, same attacker, obviously you don't know, we don't have any, uh, any other detail about how they entered, but you know, it's, I think it's becoming kind of a, a well-worn path. Um, now what's interesting is that they've also uncovered another domain for empire blue, which uses a number one instead of an L in the word blue. You know, and the thing that struck me about this story is, again, it's not incredibly interesting, except we got to banter about credit monitoring, which is fun. Um, <laughs> is is there some, um, you know, kind of going back to the whole threat intelligence uh, brouhaha, is there some benefit or some some way to look at our organization's domains and, and detect when something like this pops up? I don't know the answer to that, right? What do you mean? Pop up like as in a, a third-party monitoring service that's or or some piece of software that's monitoring for yeah look alike look alike domains. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking about that too. Uh, I think it makes sense for any large organization to probably just go and register common look alike domains or typo domains or that sort of thing um, as as a primary thing. But you know, in theory, SSL is supposed to verify this. But yeah, but you know, you know, at the same time, you could just create a certificate with the misspelling, and exactly. the SSL cert's going to come up clean. Um, yeah, it's an interesting problem. Um, I think it's probably you know, I think it's probably on main major organizations to try to be cognizant of this problem, go register and typo squad on those common domains that somebody like this would probably stand up um and just preemptively grab them yeah i, I I'm just concerned that you know there's all depending on how long your name is right there's potentially an almost limitless uh possible you know set of possible misspellings. And it's it's really really difficult. So I guess my 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 question is more along the lines of, you know, hey, here's a here's an opportunity, or a, <laughs> here's a business opportunity, right? To uh, to look for this sort of of thing, you know, for, so, on, on behalf of a company. Interesting. Uh, along those lines, is that as difficult it is for a company to think to register those, I'm trying to figure out how a business would figure out these sorts of things as well. There's lots easily. of lots of creative people. Yeah. You're right. Just because we can't think of it on the fly without, you know, spending any time on it doesn't mean somebody else can. Exactly. So or can't, I should say. Anyway. Uh, so uh so yeah, that, that that was the the I think the point I wanted to make is um you know it's be- again it's be- becoming apparently a thing. So you know kind of watch for that. All right, and our last story is kind of long and complicated. So um, we've, we've... Now, you may think 
this topic has died down. Oh, oh no. but you would be wrong. I think it's just getting started. Yeah, so um, so the story here, and this comes from Forbes.com, and the title is Guns, Ammos, Bombs, Gun Ammo, sorry, Bomb Supplies, Commandeered Cars and Planes, Dangerous Tweets for Alleged Flight Hacker. And it's a, in, in true Forbes form, it's a rather long read, and includes some of the more interesting tweets made by uh, Mr. Chris Roberts over the past uh, number of years, including such gems as uh, where he uh, turned his Ford rental car back in and hoped that the uh, rental car company didn't mind that he uh, swapped out the entertainment center uh, with one running Linux, or or I should say uh, installed Linux on the entertainment console. We we should remind folks if you don't know who Chris Roberts is, just in case you know you're you're new to this show or uh, been on vacation or whatever. Chris Roberts is the guy who made the tweet on the United flight about hacking into the ECAS system and got detained by the FBI for four hours. And then search warrant came out uh, alleging all sorts of nasty nasty things Chris Roberts said he could do, uh, and now he's lawyered up and not really talking anymore. And in, in in the aftermath of that, the, um, the actual search warrant was published, uh, allegedly, by a uh, Canadian newspaper or news agency. I don't still don't know how they got their hands on it, but that actually drove quite a lot of controversy because, um, you know, it, it alleged lots of things that Mr. Roberts reported to have said to the FBI, which, um, you know... I guess was used in support of the uh, the, the search warrant. Uh, so you know things like I uh, hacked into planes fifteen or sixteen times, and most of the InfoSec world uh, turned a, uh, a dim eye upon the FBI, right, uh, for thinking that they were being overzealous and on a witch hunt and being silly utilitarian in their interpretation of what mr roberts had said however upon further review uh the wonderful thing about the internet once something's out there on the internet it doesn't go away yeah and mr roberts has a long history of saying and tweeting and speaking while recorded and it paints an interesting picture. Yeah. So that's the background. Now on to the Forbes story. Yeah. So um, so any, any, as I mentioned, there are quite a lot. I mean, it's, it's a very long treatise on exactly all of the shenanigans that have said. But, but it extends back uh, fairly far uh, with Mr. Roberts tweeting about uh, taking over or... or you know, did he in fact break an Airbus, right? Uh, that that apparently was uh, quote broken. Sat on Airbus A320, broken. Promise it's not my fault. Ish. Uh, 787 lands in New Orleans. Nice of Boeing to drop me off where I'm presenting, especially as it's about them and hack, hacking the damn thing. 
Uh, and then there's this gem, Air Force One, is a 747-200 to be replaced by 787. Anyone guess what we can do with the FADECs? FADAC, Full Authority Digital Engine Control. There you go. So uh, basically those are the computers that control the engines. Yep. Um, I already mentioned the one about the uh, the entertainment system on the Ford. And then uh, immediately following that one, apparently you going back to the same con, arrived at GRRCon. Apparently rental car companies remember the last few years and I'm only allowed non-infotainment wheel. Uh, yeah. Spelling, um, <laughs> misspelling uh, read as it, as it appears. Uh, and then we get some really interesting ones. Mars Rover Curiosity. Hack in and change music playlist. Challenge accepted. Wow, that's an interesting one. I think I'm in love. Just found CERN's LHC configuration page along with the beam injectors. Man, I know what I'm doing for the fourth now. Wow. That's a good one. Um, yeah, and then, then there's some that are a little more mundane, I would think. Like... Um, you know, I don't know exactly why this was thrown in here, but because um, because guns are bad, because guns are bad, right? He he's there's a there's a deal in Las Vegas during uh, security summer camp where people go out into the desert and they blow stuff up and have fun. And really, who doesn't like to do that? All completely legal. Yeah. So anyway, um, but I'll skip past that. Yeah, that's just inflammatory and silly. So. So here, the next the next bit extracts some uh, some things that were said in conferences, and I, I spent earlier today trying to distill out some of the the highlights for you, the audience. I'm going to play them for you now. Here we go. Now you've got your modified program that says when the guy puts autopilot on, ignore the coordinates that he's put in there. Let's just focus on where you want to go. And by the way, when you've done that, this little analog signal over here, just continue to try and make friends with it. In fact, don't ever stop making friends with it. So the pilot's going, turn this thing off, and and nothing happens. (laughs) So this this started off as the cornfield in Kansas syndrome, which is what CFIK was. We decided we were going to pick on a couple of airports, and and the math on this was a pain in the ass, which is why we never got further than basically... Two airports, one out in Denver and then one out on the East Coast. We picked on two airports, we figured out where the main air corridors started and where they ended up putting on autopilot. Because again, this is all public information. You don't have to do much more than do research, amazing research. Autopilot goes on at a certain altitude and it does all these things and here's all the coordinates and here's how it's meant to work. Well, that's great, now we'll modify it. So originally we were going to put it in a cornfield in Kansas. But eventually I figured out where Jesse lived. So then I programmed Jesse's coordinates in. So Jesse was going to get a couple of 787s and a couple of 747s buzzing his house. But he didn't like that, and he shoots better than I do. So we went back to the cornfield in Kansas. <laughs> now, how many of you guys know Nickerson? Chris Nickerson comes out of 303 on neck of the woods. Chris is a really good guy. He's also probably a little bit more of a humanitarian than I am. My idea was basically used to fly the airplane up, drop the engines, and watch it come down, see what happened. Chris figured that was a little bit too drastic and figured out that we should probably land the aeroplane and, and preserve some life. <laughs> Emphasis on some life. So, again, come back to data, come back to organizations. Risk. You have to be able to quantify risk. 
We need a ship. So this was Oslo again earlier this year. And I'm sitting on the quayside. And I've got a wireless antenna running, and I'm just making friends with whoever's around. And I notice that a couple of wireless access points keep on coming in and disappearing off on a fairly cyclical basis. And I realize it's the bloody ships. I'm like, they got free Wi-Fi for people. But they don't. Their wireless access points are actually for their internal systems. <laughs> so, if you can actually get one of the damn things to stay still for more than five minutes and actually stay within wireless range, you can very quickly, very simply, and very easily, with the use of Backtrack and a few other things, gain access to their wireless network, crack the key that it's running. It's web. It doesn't take very long to crack the damn web key. And now I'm on their network. So all I do is I run a quick scan across the network. We find the engine management software. It's running RDP on 3389. <laughs> takes about two minutes to crack the administration password. It's a derivative of the company that's running the ships. So now we're sitting on the engine management system, at which point we actually stop the engines. Again, you know, we're trying to be ecologically friendly. <laughs> so we're doing this. At this point in time, we've actually got our host from uh, HackCon out there, and he's asking us what we're doing. We're like, see the ship? He's like, you cannot do that. We just did. You shouldn't do that. We just did. Start it up again. Working on it. I got into trouble for playing with the space station, what was that, seven, eight, nine years? How many years ago was that? Crap. Eight, nine years ago, we messed around with the space station. We adjusted the temperature on it. It was quite fun. We got yelled at by NASA. And so there you have it. Uh, I apologize for the quality of the audio. It, you know, I, I did what I could to clean it up, but, uh, you know, there it is. So we're, we're, we'll make sure we have sources for these in the show notes. These are all YouTube videos. So there was three different clips. Uh, the the first one, obviously, the audio quality changed pretty dramatically. Uh, talking about air, you know, the airplanes and autopilot. Uh, let me address that one first. Chris has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to airline autopilots. It's I, I can't even. I'll bore the hell out of the audience, but that is not how things work. There's no spot on a chart where autopilots are turned on and turned off. There is, and autopilots are much more sophisticated than a set of coordinates set into a little box. This is not a trivial thing that is like the GPS in your car. There's typically three or four different systems in a major aircraft, including an inertial navigation system that is calculating where the aircraft is and where it's trying to be. And the autopilot system usually has more to do with what altitude they want the aircraft to fly at, what uh, descent or ascent rate they want the aircraft to change at, what heading they want the aircraft to be on. And autopilots typically turn on 500 to 1,000 feet off the ground on takeoff and typically turn off about 1,000 feet off the ground. Uh, but that's completely at discretion of the flight crew. So uh, it's just not – it really challenges the, the veracity of the statement because he's not accurately understanding and communicating how a major airliner's autopilot system works. So first off, he's just not correct. Uh, second of all, uh, whether he's joking or not, we're now seeing a pattern of behavior – 
where he says that, you know, he wants to just shut a plane's engine off and see what happens and preserve some life. Yeah, you're being edgy and snarky and cool, but let's look at all of these clips together. And I know, Jerry, I'm off my rant here. I'll, I'll give you back the mic in a minute. Uh, then he talks about how he's sitting on the shore in, uh, in Europe and hacks into a ship and turns on and off its engines. Again, without permission, without advising anybody, nor, as far as I know, ever published the proof of concept, the exploit, or the way he did it. So, clearly, at best, he has some ethical challenges here. Then he talks about hacking, quote-unquote, the space station and changing the temperature on the space station, and that NASA yelled at him. Uh, NASA's reply, reply was that claim was laughable. Now, it's certainly not above the government to lie, uh, but I think if someone actually had uh, hacked the space station. Oh, and I don't think you kept the end quote in there, uh, uh, Jerry. I don't, I don't know if you've got it queued up, but he says on the end of it, if they're going to leave their shit open and it's not encrypted, that's their own silly fault. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I did cut it off a little sooner. Yep. Um, which I think is key to speaking to Chris's mentality. I think that's a key quote. Key quote. So... In my mind, I, I initially defended Chris pretty heavily, and I still agree that somebody shouldn't be pulled off a flight and interrogated for four hours because they made a tweet. That was clearly a joke. I stand by that statement because that could happen to any of us, and we should be free from government persecution for a statement over Twitter. And I know that there's all sorts of First Amendment, but what about firing the theater? Go do your research. That is not a valid argument against the First Amendment, by the way. So – what we have seen, in my opinion, is that there's only one of a couple of options here. Either Chris is one of the best hackers on the planet, he has, or he has no ethics and no morals. Well, wouldn't it be and? Uh, well, they're two different things. No, no, I mean, but sure. I mean, if he can yeah. do that, he's... I think he's got ethical lapses. Or he's completely full of shit. And he's exaggerating to make himself look better. I, I, I'm out of other options here. Um, so in my mind, my sympathy for Chris is going way down very quickly. The more of these clips come out, the more of these tweets come out. Uh, you know, the shame of this is that I, I personally think that he's full of crap and that, that it's bad because these are legitimate research items that he is now setting this research back by years because of the way that he's approaching this. You know, if you want a good counterexample of how to do this right, take a look at what Charlie Miller and Chris uh, Velasic are doing with, with car security and car hacking. They're being very ethical about it. They're being very upfront about it. They're trying to communicate with the auto companies to try to build awareness. Now, Chris says that he has tried to communicate with uh, the airlines, the airline manufacturers, to, to, to communicate these issues. Uh, maybe so, but now he's running around 
at conferences saying that he's done all this elite uber hacker hacksaw crap and look how big and bad he is. So now I'm thinking that this entire search warrant that we ripped to shreds, that the FBI came out and said, oh, look at the witch, burn the witch. Now I'm wondering if this is stuff he told the FBI that he could do. Well, it's, I mean, it certainly seems to fit what he's said at conferences. I mean, there's no, that's kind of hard to <laughs> dispute at this point. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, maybe it's, I'm in my, in my old age, I'm growing soft. I don't know. It, to me, it seems like there's another, uh, maybe not fundamentally different option, but I suspect here's my, here's my take. And, and by the way, I don't really know Chris at all. You know, I think I Yeah, that's fair. I, I can say the same. Everything that I'm saying is based on the public view right. of what's being reported. But what's public what's what's in the public eye. But um you know But that's also that's also saying sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But it's also why I want to make sure that we publish the links to these clips so that, that our audience can listen to the entire clip in context. Yeah. And see that we are not just selectively editing. Yeah, and they're they're actually embedded in the Forbes article, both of yeah. both of them. They're uh, I think the first one's like forty minutes long, and the second one's about fifty, little over fifty minutes long. And I do invite everybody to listen to the whole thing. Um, you know, here's the thing. I, I, you know, I think, I think that, uh, Chris, a lot of what Chris talks about is OSINT, right? So it's going out and finding information about pieces of technology. Um. I think, right, based on what I've seen, uh, and, and certainly the fact that he is, you know, certainly has had experience apparently in the penetration testing world and whatnot, that, you know, you can take a given piece of technology or a given system like a ship or a plane or whatever, and you can go figure out, you know, what kinds of things are in it. And, envision in your mind how they might be connected together and come up with a scenario in your mind that is concerning to you and uh and and effectively take up a personal cause to make sure that uh you know that these things are not putting people in danger and so i i wonder if the motivation is in fact noble you know but there's actually nothing necessarily behind it, right? It's it's kind of all uh, imagined scenarios, and that's kind of why where we get to the point where we're talking about planes flying sideways, and you know autopilots being turned off, on and off, and changing the temperature on the space station, and things like that. Because you know, theoretically, all that stuff is possible. Theoretically. That's not how he's presenting it, though. I know, and I'm uh, right, but I think uh, it's it certainly, you know, maybe there is some element of personal benefit in positioning it the way that he's done. But I think the other, again, assuming assuming the the, the moral high ground is, you know, people are not going to take it seriously unless you know he portrays it as having done it. Now, on the flip side of this. Regardless of all of that, right? It we have a problem in the information security world right now, where this stuff is being viewed increasingly as witchcraft. 
You know, we, we're, we're constantly bemoaning the CFAA here in the U.S. and, you know, the, the persecution of hackers and things like that. And doing this sort of thing where you're, you're effectively couching, um, you know, this hacking is almost magical, right? That does not help our cause in the least. And, and, and also, um, it doesn't help our relationship with vendors, right? When like Boeing or Airbus or, or what have you, if in fact, you know, we're, we're, we're basically producing, um, a lie, <laughs> right? Um, because you know, now, now you're, you're putting them on the defensive, right? They don't want to play in your sandbox because, you know, you are kind of bad mouthing them. And, and so they're just going, they're going to keep you at arm's length or as far away as they can and say, look, you know, we got this under control. You're clearly, you know, you're, you're, you just don't have it right. So go away. So jumping off on that point, though, isn't this kind of the responsible disclosure debate where you go to a vendor and you say, look, I found this vulnerability. Here's my proof of concept code. Uh, You've got, you know, 60, 90, 30, 180 days to release a patch or I'm going to, you know, release my proof of concept code kind of like Google was doing. Um, It it is, but I think for, you know, to force that vendor to patch. There's a there's an important difference, though. It's a very important difference, and that is in most contemporary instances, I buy or otherwise obtain a piece of software from Microsoft or Google or SAP or Oracle or whoever, and then I go and I poke at it and I prod at it, or maybe I go and poke and prod at somebody's website as part of their bug bounty program or whatever, right? That's one thing. Poking at, you know, intruding into the, you know, an operating system, not, 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 not the computer kind, right? But, you know, a system like a plane or a boat or a car that doesn't belong to you, that is being used by people is wrong, right? That is not, that is the, in my mind, in no way, shape or form does that fall within the bounds of any sane definition of full disclosure. I agree. And there is a period of time in in the history of hacking where people had this idea that if I can break into it, it's my duty to break into it because you should have secured your stuff. You're bad. I think we have matured past that point. I, I hope we have. Yeah. yeah. And you know, if you view that you're going to enhance security by burning something to the ground that doesn't belong to you to prove your point, you're part of the problem. Yeah, and I, I guess kind of circling back to you know the the, the point I was I was trying to get to with ah, sorry. the uh, no no it's yeah. it's fine with with uh, alienating these vendors. You know, you can't realistically you can't you can't test about you know a, a seven eighty seven. Right, in any reasonable case, without the cooperation of Boeing or an airline, or, or the manufacturer of the equipment. Yes, right, because Boeing Correct. doesn't manufacture the you know the avionics. And right, such, right, but, but they. I assume they're the ones. They're the integrators. I don't. Yeah, I don't maybe absolutely. there's a, a third party in there too. I don't know, but it it just <laughs> seems it, it just seems to me like you know uh, 
you you have to have their support. Otherwise, the only alternative is you, in fact, are poking at planes as they're flying in the sky. And that's, you know, unfortunately, well, I guess I don't know, it's not really unfortunate, right? But that's criminal act, right? Right. That is going to land, to land you in prison, period, so, end of story. Ignoring Chris Roberts for a second and just talking about this topic. What if you are a researcher and you, without having done anything unethical or immoral and you haven't poked at real planes, but for whatever reason, somehow, hypothetically, you've come up with information that you know that there is a vulnerability and you try to bring this to the attention of the manufacturers and they're ignoring you. What do you do? Well, I I think that is, that is the full disclosure debate right there. But if you know, that's, that's a slightly different circumstance than you've, you know, yeah, I'm taking I'm taking what Chris did out of the situation because right. um, I don't think what he did is appropriate or defendable anymore. What I'm saying is that I'm taking that and taking what I believe his intentions were, though his his methodology was flawed, and saying, okay, if I had the same intentions and assuming I had knowledge, which again I don't think Chris has either, but let's <clears throat> so a couple hypotheticals here. One, I'm not an asshole. Two, I actually do have legitimate knowledge of a problem. I can't really demonstrate proof of concept unless I somehow get enough credibility with the vendor to allow me to test in a controlled, safe environment, like in a ground, in a lab, something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's conceivable that those manufacturers could, could say to this independent researcher, go away, you bother me, kid. But I think that there's enough agencies out there, whether it be the NTSB, the FAA, um, you know, various media outlets, uh, that if you have a credible – I'd like to think if you have a credible concern with enough knowledge, you probably could get some attention. Um, But it's a weird, tough area to actually do any research in safely. Yeah, that's that's the that's the uh, you know the unfortunate problem is that there there may very well be vulnerabilities on airplanes, and you know there may very well be some things that that um, you know that that have been discussed which are in fact real. The problem is they've not been properly you know, they've not been properly exercised, and so now um, you know we're we're in this position where the focus is not on those vulnerabilities anymore. It's entirely on the, you know, on, on this, the drama of the story and whatnot. Yeah. And, and that's not where we need to be as an industry. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to say that it's, you know, you should never, we should never ever consider exploring vulnerabilities because, you know, at the same time you have the, you know, the, 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 the problem that, you know, uh, if you do find, you know, kind of the the front door is slightly open, you know, they're going to, obviously the response is going to be, yeah, but there's things behind that, right? And then unless you, you know, unless you probe a little bit more, you're not going to be able to reasonably say, well, that's not actually true. Uh, but again, I, I don't know how, I don't know how you, you know, manage that. That's, you know, again, because you're, 
you know, number one, you're treading into criminal territory. And number two, you're treading into territory that's potentially putting people at risk. And, you know, that's a, that's a big ethical issue. We, you know, we kind of, as, you know, in this industry, we have to, we have to have pretty good reputations. I mean, that is, that's all we got at the end of the day is our reputation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, circling back around, I, I hate to be, I don't like when the security industry eats its own or has drama or pettiness or silliness, but I really do feel at this point that Chris is actually hurting the goals that he says he's trying to help. Uh, and I no longer feel Chris has credibility to me. Um, and uh, that's a shame. You know, I, 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 the other thing I want to point out is Paul Security Weekly did uh, a, about a 35-minute interview with Chris. Uh, it's on episode 417 on May 7th. It's interesting. Uh, it's, you know, shout out to, to Paul Security Weekly and to go watch that, that chunk of – or the whole thing or all of their stuff. But um, I, I would love to interview Chris and ask him this stuff. But, uh, you know, now that I'm on this record, I – and the fact that his lawyers told him to stop speaking about it, I doubt he would come on the show. Um, but, I, I, you know, I would love that opportunity to give him a chance to respond, to to be fair and to, to have that conversation and to, to really, you know, try to press him on these issues uh, in, in, a, in a fair way, you know, and see, see if maybe I'm just completely off base here. But right now I'm calling BS on his allegations and I think – there's something else going on here. Yeah, I agree. And you know, we may we may learn more. I mean, there's the, the the reality of the matter is there's an ongoing investigation with the FBI and it's not going to go away. They they'll make a conclusion one way or another. Um I don't know how it's going to turn out and if we're wrong, you know, we'll be on here apologizing. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, as as the story develops, we'll keep reporting on it. Yeah. Um, you know, I just uh, and to be fair, by the way, I don't think these aircraft systems are perfect. Uh, I just think this is not the way to cope out it. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, anything? Uh, any last words you want to mention on uh, this? You know, I'd love to hear feedback from our our loyal listeners. Uh, you know, always, always happy to hear feedback and you know where to find us. We'll, we'll sum it up at the end of the show, but, uh, I think it's just incumbent upon us as the InfoSec industry to not give credibility to those who don't deserve it. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, you know, by the way, we, we mentioned this a little bit ago. Uh, let's, again, we don't know with certainty anything right we're just that's we're, that's true we're making an assessment based on on the data that is in front of us um but it's interesting kind of retrospectively to go back and look at some of those um you know some of those conference videos and it makes me wonder because a lot of conference talks have kind of salacious, you know, are, are, are the conveyance of somewhat salacious or extraordinary experiences by pen testers or by, you know, uh, social engineers or, or what have you. And this, this whole thing kind of has me wondering, 
you know how how often is what we hear just baloney <laughs> um you know and 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 how and then furthermore, how does that color our view of the world and what we prioritize as infosec practitioners? So you're saying we should do a better job of peer reviewing talks that are being given? I, I don't know. I'm I'm it's at this point it's simply it's simply a a question banging around in the back of my head. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, in this case, um, it's not like we saw proof being issued out uh, in any of his talks. So, yeah, I don't know. That is a good point. You know, it, it makes you question uh, the legitimacy of talks being given at cons. Yeah, I mean, clearly some are, are, you know, you can't fake some things, right? But, um, in, you know, in others that are, you know, and I, I, I certainly am now thinking back to uh, lots of talks that I've listened to where people have described, you know, the the experiences they've had as pen testers, um, especially the physical pen testers, by the way. Um, you know, I, it just makes me wonder, you know, is is it real? And I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you avoid that and still be you know, uh, uh, still have a reasonably open and accessible conference, but it just, um, it's just something that, that strikes me as a potential hole in the bucket, so to speak. So, and, and potentially has significant consequences or significant implications if in fact that's what's happening. Because again, you know, we are, we are human and uh, these kinds of things form, uh, you know, form our view of the world and 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 what we think is important. So, and if that's a bunch of crap, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So, anyhow, I think we'll uh, we'll call it an evening with that. So, thank you again, Mr. Kellett. Thank you, sir. Uh, I probably won't be here for your next two shows, by the way. Yeah, I actually did want to mention. I'm not exactly sure if we will have a show next week because uh, you'll be out and I will be in DC for the weekend. We may, we may not, I don't know. And then the weekend after that, I will figure out what we're going to do. So uh, with that, if you have any comments or questions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find the, uh, the show notes that we talked about today or for the, uh, the articles we talked about today at our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callot on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk to you again uh, next time, whenever that is. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Always appreciate everybody listening. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.